It's good after being away last week to be back here this morning. Brother Mike, we are so thankful for you to preach the word last week, and I, I entrust that you were faithful as always in that work. So thank you again, brother, for that work. Uh, if you're visiting with us this morning or, or just wonder maybe why we do what we do each week, why do we give the majority of our service to the preaching and teaching of God's word? Well, it's because we actually believe that this word is God's word, that this is how God speaks to his people today to reveal himself to us so that we may know him and love him. That's why we give the majority of our time here. We as Christians have for 2,000 years want to come and to sit under this authority each and every Lord's day because we entrust that God's word does not return void. So that's why we give so much attention to it. So this morning we jump back into our series in the gospel according to John to continue that work, to hear what it is God would have to say to us this morning. Yes, the word was written some 2,000 years ago, but it still speaks. It speaks as we read it. It speaks as we proclaim it, as we preach it and teach it. It doesn't just give us head knowledge, but its aim is to transform us. So that's why we do what we do here every Lord's Day. And we aim to do that here through John 1, verses 29 through 34, which will be on the screen momentarily. But after being away for a couple of weeks, as we dive back in here to the gospel according to John, we need to have a recap, a running start to get us back into the text. We've seen here already that the word which was with God in the beginning was God, that he was God from very beginning, that he is the one who has become flesh, made incarnate, that he is the one that John the disciple and John the Baptist both have been laboring to tell us this is the one you need to pay attention to. This is the one you need to believe. They're laboring to bear witness so that we may believe. And that same thing is being picked up here again in John 1, 29 through 34 this morning. So if you have a Bible and I know it's there on the screen and the temptation is just to look there. But I really encourage you. Make a habit of bringing your Bible and opening so you can follow along as we do. You've also got a pew Bible there in front of you or, or open one of, of the few gifts of technology of being able to open a Bible app to an ESV Bible app or a version Bible app and, and open to the ESV, which is what I preach from, to follow along. So hear the word of God from John 1, beginning in verse 29. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is maybe or maybe not a familiar passage to you. 
And yet, this is a passage that should cause us to be in awe this morning. And here's what I think the main idea of John 1, 29 through 34 is trying to teach us this morning. Jesus, the Son of God, came to take away the sin of the world as the Lamb of God. Therefore, set your eyes on him and be changed. Let me repeat that, and it's on the screen as well. Jesus, the Son of God, came to take away the sin of the world as the Lamb of God. Therefore, set your eyes on him and be changed. We're going to look at this in two points. Number one, the Lamb of God. Number two, the Son of God. Let's look first at the Lamb of God. This section here begins with a time marker. It says, the next day. As we see this in Scripture, it helps us to know a transition of point or emphasis is is taking place. When time changes, typically it's the author saying, okay, I'm transitioning to something else that's either preceding this or different than this. In particular here, the previous day, John the Baptist was antagonized. He was questioned. He was put on trial by the religious leaders of the day. Why are you baptizing? If you yourself have declared you're not the son of, or if you're not the Christ, you're not the prophet, you're not Elijah reincarnate, why are you doing this? So they had just done this. But a day now goes by. A new day has dawned. And John here says, sees Jesus coming towards him and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is a loaded statement. It's a beautiful statement. It's a statement because of familiarity we often get lost on. Oh, I know this. I'm just going to brush on by. I want to read a quote from J.C. Ryle, which is helpful here as we rightly begin to understand this truth. He says... These are golden truths indeed. Well, would it be for the church of Christ if they were used by all who know them? Our very familiarity with texts like these is one of our greatest dangers. Blessed are the A who not only keep this text in their memories, but feed upon it in their hearts. This morning, as we think about behold the Lamb of God who has come to take away our sin or the sin of the world, Friends, I don't care how familiar this text is. Let us feast on it. Let us taste and savor every last drop of the sweet honey that comes from these words. Let us continue to meditate upon this as we go throughout this day and this week. Because these are words we need to hear. Whether we're hearing them for the first time or the millionth time. Behold the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sin of the world. But as we do so, we need to unpack this. What does this mean and what doesn't it mean? First, we need to unpack this idea that behold, it's an old word. It's an old word to even our congregation. It's a word that's not used in most of your lives, in fact. And yet there's significance in it. The King James translated this way, and and those that come in that tradition continue to do. But maybe if you've got NIV, you see something like look. Or a CSB even adds a different translation that I can't remember right off the top of my head. And while it very much does say look, it's more than just this casual glance. 
Men, I'm going to pick on you for a moment, the few of us here. This isn't the type of look we give and pay attention when our wives say, look at this, and we half hear them and ignore them. Don't look at Jesus like that. The look here is much more like, pay great attention to this. Pay close attention and careful, because what's coming is super important. Give emphatic attention. Pay close attention to the details coming, because they are so important. Don't miss it. Friends, as you see the word behold in Bible reading, this is just a quick free to the side application. Slow down and savor what's coming. Because it's not something just to blow past. It's to slow down and dwell upon, to meditate upon and chew as long as you can. Because there's sweetness there, even more so than what is normal. And the Bible is full of sweetness. It's not to de-emphasize the whole, it's to emphasize what's coming. But in particular, what is this word to behold? The Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God. It's crucial for us to understand this, to get this right. This is the very basics of Christianity rest here on Jesus being the Lamb of God. And friends, he's not just the Lamb of God because he's gentle and meek. He certainly is those things. But when it addresses him as the Lamb of God, it's not addressing his gentleness and meekness. It's addressing something much more significant. Jesus has come as from our call to worship as the Lamb that's provided by God for the sacrifice. He's the new and better Passover Lamb who has come to take away the sin of the world. First, people would put the, the Lamb of the blood on their doorpost on the night of Passover and God would look at it and see that they were trusting and believing God. He would pass over their sin every year in that. Jesus has come as the new and better Passover lamb. That as those who come to believe in him, those who trust in him, he's going to look at their blood covering them and say, I'm passing over their sin. He's the suffering servant who would come, who would be stricken, smitten and afflicted. That he would be pierced for our transgressions. That he would be counted and buried among the guilty, the vile, the wicked. So that we could be declared righteous. This is the Jesus who has come. Why? Why did he come as the Lamb of God? To be a sacrifice. What we see in Isaiah 53, 6. It says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the inequity of us all. Jesus came to be the sacrificial lamb because we were guilty. We were guilty of sin. We had gone astray. It was our inequity. It was our condemnation that was deserving of judgment. Friends, we don't clean this up on our own. You cannot clean your guilt, your iniquity, up on your own. Too many of us look at Jesus as nothing more than an insurance policy that needs our help along the way that we must do to earn God's favor. If that's your version of Christianity, you do not have a biblical one, just to be blunt and straightforward. 
That's not the gospel. That's not the good news. That means Jesus did, but still didn't do enough. Let me show you the Lamb who has come to take away the sin of the world. If you have your bulletin, go ahead and reference here in Isaiah 53, 3 through 12 once more. We've already read, we've prayed through it. But I want to revisit a few of these things. Look at the very fact that it says that we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our inequities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. It's through the wounds and the suffering and the sacrifice of Jesus that sin is dealt with. He who was innocent went as a lamb in order to be slain. He who was without guilt, without shame, was made and treated shamefully as he was taken up to the hill of Golgotha, out of the city, as an outcast, put on a tree, a shameful death, and nailed to it. This is what Jesus has done to take away the sin of the world. He laid down his life so that all who believe in him may not perish but have eternal life. This is the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sin of the world. He has come to have that sin transferred to him and taken it out into the wilderness and carried away, just like the offering and sacrifice or scapegoat, or not sacrificial, the scapegoat from Leviticus 16, where the priest would put his hand on the goat's head, the sin of the people would be transferred to the goat, he would release it out into the wilderness, and it would run off and be free. The people's sin were transferred. That's what happens in Jesus, this Lamb of God. As he's pierced, he carries our sin, our transgressions, away once and for all. He deals with it forever. He doesn't just take it away and then next time we need it, we need another sacrifice or we better straighten up our lives in order so we can appease God now. Friends, when it says he takes away the sin of the world, it's done. It's not being brought back. How many of you have that family member, that friend that loves when you get in an argument to bring old and rehash old things that you failed they love to bring back and pile on the old faults that you've, you've done. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe each time you get in a fight, they love to rehash those old things. You always do this. The very thing you said you forgive them, you, you all say they still do. That's not forgiving. That's not forgetting. Jesus doesn't do that. When we fail, he's not looking. Yeah, there's that pastor. He can't get it right straight again. No. He's carried it away. It's gone. It's not coming back. It's not being re revisited. It's not being rehashed. That's the forgiveness he brings at the cross with his sacrificial death on the cross. He takes it away once and for all, and he continues to take it away. That's good news for you and I here today. Because that argument you had with somebody this week, and you thought you blew it, there's forgiveness. If you are united to Jesus in faith, it's dealt with. You no longer have to beat yourself up because of the guilt of that sin. You're forgiven if you hold to Jesus. He dealt with it on the cross. 
that anger you got, guess what? If you rest in Jesus, it's forgiven. That former past that you can't let go of, that you continue to hold on to, I don't deserve God's mercy. I don't deserve God's mercy. I, I must do something more to pay. You don't know my past. Guess what? He takes that away too. It's dealt with. When it says that Jesus came to take away the sin of the world, he's not just saying that I've come for those who have it all together. I'm, he's not coming just for the Jews. He's not just coming from those of one particular family line. It doesn't matter your family heritage. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter. Jesus comes to take away the sin of the world. He's impartial. He doesn't show partiality in who he shows favor to. All who come to him and rest in him as the sacrificial lamb have their sins forgiven. So friend, if you're here this morning and you have yet to believe in this biblical gospel, today's the day. See that Jesus is more than just one to help us along the way. He's the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sin of the world. That he brings us peace with a holy God. That he is the one who brings us comfort. It's not in your religion. It's in Jesus and what he's already done on the cross. Behold the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sin of the world. But you think, wait, most of us are believers. Christian, this is good news for us. Beloved brothers and sisters, this is good news for us. Because he continues to sanctify us in Christ. He continues to remove that sin from us. That means we don't have to keep walking on eggshells hoping we're going to mess it up. We're going to blow our salvation. We look at Jesus and say, he's already done it. We rest in that. We find confidence in his shed blood that it's actually cleansed us of that sin. That it set us free from the bondage of sin. That it's set us free so that we can actually stand before God as righteousness. Even as Christ died, bearing the guilt of our sins, he did not remain dead. He rose from the grave and is seated next to the Father right now, interceding for those who are his own. And guess what he does as he intercedes for the Christian? Christian, as Jesus is there before the Father and interceding on our behalf. He's saying, Father, this one's mine. As you look at them, you see me. You see my righteousness because they've trusted in the blood of me. I paid their guilt. I paid their debt already. And the Father then looks and sees us and sees the righteousness of Jesus that's been transferred to us, that's in, been imputed into us. Do you see what the Lamb of God has done, brothers and sisters? Behold the Lamb who has come to take away the sin of the world. This is the Jesus we have. Therefore, let our faith rest in Him and Him alone. Stop thinking we need to add so that somehow we can be forgiven. We're forgiven by the blood of the Lamb. There's power in the cross as we just sang. There's power in what Jesus does on the cross as he lays down his life willingly as the sacrificial lamb to carry our sin away.
once and for all. Friends, this is the message we have to hope to. It's also the message we have to take to the world and proclaim so that they may hear and believe. Christian, always, always let us savor such beauty here. The Lamb of God has come to take away the sin of the world. Let us set our eyes on him, beholding him in all his glory, and continue to feast upon this truth. Because it's in this truth we're actually free and able to do the things we're called to, rather than somehow still trying to earn forgiveness. Grasp this. Chew on this this week. But as beautiful as this is, this isn't all that John the Baptist has revealed to us here in this short passage. Yes, Jesus, behold him, the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sin of the world. But there's something even more here. And that's where we go into point two, the Son of God. Here in verse 30, it starts, This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. John the Baptist continues to take us and point us to Jesus, saying, Look, here's the Lamb of God. He's the one you need to look to. Pay attention to him, not me. Yes, he's coming after me. Yes, I know it breaks cultural code that I should have prominence over him because he's new on the scene. But don't. Pay attention to him. Here he comes. But notice what John also adds here in verse 31. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. Wait a minute, John. You don't know him. How do you know this is the Lamb of God then? How do you know this is? Or maybe you're, you're saying there, wait a minute, weren't they cousins, relatives? Yes, they were. But here's the thing. I know towns like this, I'm, I'm putting on what happened in my own family. Most of you can relate somehow to this. We live 30 minutes from my grandparents. Most every Sunday meant going to church and then going to grandma's and grandpa's for lunch. Family, extended family, cousins, second cousins, getting together and having a meal together. That doesn't happen in the ancient world. Yes, they may live 30 minutes or an hour away as far as car, but it would have been days time to travel. Most of these extended families would have not even gotten together for family type reunions. They didn't necessarily just hang out even though they were relatives and maybe knew about each other. Think of how many of you actually know in closeness and proximity your second, third, fourth, fifth cousins. Maybe a few, but most don't. So here's the thing. Yes, John the Baptist is a relative of Jesus. Yes, Mary, the mother of Jesus, went to see Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist. Yes, but she, Mary found out through that of an angel that her relative was pregnant with John the Baptist. Somebody had to communicate. There wasn't this regular interaction. They would have known each other, but from a distance. But here's the point of all of this. One, to, to make it clear what John's actually saying and what he's not saying. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. 
John's like, look, I'm not advocating this man because I know him closely. He's my good pal, and I'm just sticking up for him and wanting you to turn to him. He's saying, look, that's not why I'm recommending him. That's not why I'm pointing to him as greater. Look at verse 33, or 32. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. John had a sign that was to mark the Lamb of God. He had a sign that he was given to mark the one who was coming, who was greater than him. It wasn't because it was his cousin, his relative, his good buddy, his pal. It was because he saw this sign fulfilled. God had given John the authority to go and baptize him. He gives him the authority to say, this is the one who you see this sign come down on. What is that sign? Something made visible as the Holy Spirit coming and descending and remaining on him permanently. Why does this matter that it says that it remained on him? Maybe you've never thought about the Old Testament. Friends, if, if you've done deep study in the Old Testament, you know the Spirit did not come and remain upon those in the Old Testament. King Saul is a prime example. We see in 1 Samuel 10, 6, that Saul was first had the Spirit rush upon him so that he could prophesy in the midst but then in 1 Samuel eleven six 6, we read, And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled, this being the next time. The Spirit, therefore, didn't remain in ten six. It came on again in eleven six. But even more, the Spirit would leave Saul and hear David in Psalm 51, 11, as he's sinned with Bathsheba, makes a plea. Hear the words of David's plea in Psalm 51, 11. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. David was fearful God's Spirit would be removed from him just as it was Saul. In the Old Testament, the Spirit came and went as God decreed. It did not rest upon a person once and for all. Therefore, the sign of this coming one was one who the Spirit was going to dwell upon and not leave. It was going to rest there. But not only that, does John see that this Spirit comes and rests on Jesus, that it remains on him, that it doesn't leave him? Hear what it says again there in John 1, 33. I myself did not know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. This Spirit empowered Jesus, the one who has God's Spirit come and dwell so that it's visible. Now you can find this account in all three synoptic Gospels. You see this in that of Matthew 3, 13 through 17, Mark 1, 9 through 11, and Luke 3, 21 through 22. All of these give account of the Spirit descending upon Jesus and tell of what takes place. They hear and see the, the heavens open and a voice comes down and says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. 
But this morning, we need to focus in here on the fact that Jesus is the one who baptizes with this Holy Spirit. John the Baptist comes and baptizes like we do with water as an outward visible sign. We talked a few weeks ago about the importance of baptism, and you can go back and, and listen to that sermon from the previous section of text on our website. But we need to see here something more important than water baptism is essential. Friends, one can go through the waters of baptism and actually not be a believer. One can say they believe and yet not understand what it means to believe. One can go through the waters of baptism and yet never have this baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's this baptism of the Holy Spirit that's essential for one who is truly a believer. One who is to truly walk in the ways of God. That's why this is so important here as we see the Lamb of God is the one who also then gives the Spirit of God to people. He's the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. What is the Spirit? Ezekiel eleven nineteen through 20 says, All I will give them, or, and I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. And they will walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. The Spirit is the one that was long prophesied of. This is that of a new covenant was coming, was made evidence of this new spirit, of this new life. In fact, this is so crucial that John and Nicodemus and John 3 are going to have this conversation at night that one must be born again. How? Through this baptized Holy Spirit. But what does that mean? It means that we need a new heart, a new spirit. And it doesn't come through the waters of baptism. It comes through the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which comes to us at the hour we first believe. Some of our friends get this wrongly. Some like to say that when you, you're baptized in the water, this counts as the baptism of the Spirit. Or, or when you're baptized with the Spirit, you see these outward signs of tongues and, and different giftings. We love our brothers and sisters of, of different backgrounds and practices, but I, I think they get that wrong, and so does John the Baptist here. Because when it says that he baptizes with the Holy Spirit here, that he's doing something different than this water baptism, there's a clear distinction. But even more so, Scripture helps us in understanding this. That in this baptism of the Spirit, of the Holy Spirit, one is given this new heart and spirit. They're given this new heart and spirit to actually believe. It's this new spirit coming through the work of the word that work in tandem to produce life. Friends, why do you think those who are actually led to true belief don't need coaxing to come forward? Because the spirit's already at work in them. The Spirit, through the Word, comes and cuts them to the very depth of their soul. That Word that we see in Hebrews 4 that's living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. The Word and the Spirit work together to cut to the heart. To turn and take out that dead stone heart so that a new one can come in. That's what true belief is. 
And as that new spirit then begins to work, it produces in visible faith. It produces transformation in the heart because of a new heart and a new spirit that is given through the power of the Holy Spirit. Friends, let me challenge here. We love to talk about the works of the Spirit in untangible ways. The Spirit led me to do this. The Spirit led me to take this action. The Spirit led me to do this. That's not the work of the Spirit we're called as biblical Christians to emphasize. You want to know the work of the Holy Spirit that we're actually called to see? It's a life-producing Spirit that transforms cold and dead hearts into new living ones. That's transformed by this work. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. How does it do this? Galatians 5, 22 through 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. One who has been baptized by the Holy Spirit is going to have these fruits of the Spirit made visible in their lives. They're going to see this change. They're going to have some of these fruits. Maybe not all. And you're not always going to be increasing in every one of these. Christian, but we should be able to look back at our own lives or the lives of one another in testifying that, yes, you are a true believer by seeing these fruits increase in us. As you look back at the last month or the last year, you should be able to look back and see an increase in one of these fruits of the Spirit. You should see that you're either increasing in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If you're not, friend, you may not have ever believed in the true gospel and been baptized in that of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit produces these things in those who receive this baptism of the Spirit. And you need today to wake up and believe the true gospel. You need to repent of your sin and come and find rest in Jesus. But others of you, look back at your life. See how you've increased in these different things and find hope and encouragement in that. Get a faithful brother or sister to come alongside you and ask, brother, sister, do you see significant growth in my walk with Jesus? And if so, how? What tangible ways do you see that increase? As you look back and you see, you know what, brother, I know you're struggling with this idea of patience. But let me assure you, I've seen your love increase as you continue to, to labor to put others before yourselves. As you serve the body of Christ in, in unrecognized and tangible ways. A dear sister that was sick and not feeling well and doubting the fact that you went to visit and encourage and point back to the Bible and point back to the hope of Christ. Rest in that confidence. Rest in the fact that, yes, I know you're struggling still to labor in that gentleness. But brother, sister, I've seen you grow in self-control over the last year. 
Yes, you're still in the struggle for this, but I'm seeing you increase in that. I'm seeing you get more and more gentle with that stubborn, frustrating brother or sister. Keep working. Keep striving. You're secure in Christ. Do you see the security this work and fruits of the Spirit actually have in us? It brings us great hope for the Christian who has actually been born of the Spirit because they don't have to look back. What date was I baptized? What fruit of the Spirit do I see increasing? That's your assurance. That's your hope in the midst of the hopelessness. The true one who has been born and under the Lamb of God, the blood of the sacrifice of God, they produce this new spirit. Because otherwise they wouldn't believe. Because as that spirit comes upon the Christian and brings them to that belief, it doesn't depart. Just as it did not depart from Jesus, those who Jesus entrusts the spirit on, it remains upon them and it keeps them until the day they die. And they're united by that faith where what's invisible becomes visible. Do you see the beauty of the spirit that we are baptized in? It both gives us the ability to believe. It gives us the ability to live out this new life. It gives us the ability to endure until Christ comes back. Friends, as you look to Christ, as you remember the fact that this is the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sin of the world, know that He's not only taken the sin of the world away, He's giving you the very tool to believe this truth, to live this truth, and to abide in this truth until he comes again. This is the Jesus we turn our eyes to. This is the Jesus we need to pay close attention to and keep looking to and talking about. This is the Jesus whom we are to love with everything we've got. Friends, he didn't come to die on the cross so that he still needed help. He came to do it. The question is, will we believe in that truth and rest in that truth or not? I hope you will believe in this and rest in this today and keep resting in it until the day he comes again, where our faith becomes sight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father.